welcome to the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself? My name's Carl Sherwood and I'm a lecturer at UQ and my main area of interest is first year students. Great. So let's go back a little bit. So what piqued your interest to actually begin studying economics at university? That's an interesting question because I'm actually a structural engineer. So my first degree is in civil engineering and then I came back to university to do a master's course, an MBA, in 2000, which is some time back. And in that, I got exposed to economics. So through the MBA, I then shifted away from engineering and came back to university as a tutor. So as a tutor, I then got exposed to micro, macro statistics, and I started helping students from developing countries, specifically AusAid at UQ. And through that, I started to realise that there are some fundamental issues that students face in learning. And so I developed my own techniques, one of which was storytelling and trying to create stories to get across complex ideas or abstract ideas, and in particular within statistics. So from that, I then got invited to join the School of Economics to concentrate on large first-year courses where the diversity in students is quite large and concepts can be difficult. So then I became a specialist in first years, difficult courses. Great. And so you had quite a different path then from most lecturers. Mm -hmm. Did you ever end up getting your PhD? I'm currently still working on that. And the area of interest is in storytelling and particularly in how students make sense of learning statistics and abstract concepts. Great. And what interested you in exactly going into those kind of storytelling methods again as a tutor it's interesting how it started i actually went on a fishing trip in about 2007 or 8 and i came back and was tutoring some students in introductory statistics and i started talking about the normal distribution seagulls pelicans and animal characters and students started to pay attention or ask questions and they were clearly interested and then a few weeks later, I heard people talking over a coffee about this question's a seagull question. No, it's not. It's a pelican question. And anybody else would have thought, what are they talking about? But they'd taken a language that I developed within my classes to try to make sense of something that was quite abstract, like the normal distribution or sampling distribution of the sample mean. And so that really captured my imagination. And from there, I just kept building on this idea. And 10 years later, I'm still building and exploring those ideas. And how do statistics actually connect to economics? Because I think a lot of students, when they begin, don't really see the true connection between studying this introduction to statistics and what they're actually going to do as a real-life career. Good question. The other course that I spend some time on is Intro Micro, which is also a big course. And in that course, I guess... The catchphrase is economics is about choice. So at the end of the day, we have to make decisions. So if you look at statistics, really it's taking data. And in the course I do, it's all about making inferences from that data, which is really trying to understand what the data is telling you to then make choices. So I like to try and think that intro stats is a way of looking at problems in the real world. So I try to teach in a context so that if you can think about a particular context, use the data and then draw conclusions, you can probably make decent choices. 
So that's the connection between microeconomics and statistics for me. And finally, before we move on to your research a bit more, which we're going to take as your teaching methods, what advice would you give to a uni student who is starting out at the moment? Starting out? Hmm, good question. Probably to expose yourself to as many different ways of thinking as you can. So my approach is really a way to learn and a way to think. So I think if you come from high school and come straight to university, high school is one way of thinking. It's more process, procedures, get to the answer, tick. And if you have that same attitude as a university student, it can probably limit where you'll go. And that's a hard thing to get used to. It takes a semester, at least maybe two semesters, to change from a high school thinker to a university student on the path to becoming a professional. And a professional will think and act differently to what a school student does. So first year really is a transition year. So be exposed or prepared to learn to learn and to think differently and just start to move away perhaps from the way you were thinking at high school. Excellent. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, no, it definitely does. I know for me the transition was quite a big one. So the transition is hard. I often talk about when you go from grade 10 to grade 11, there's a bit of a step up. But from grade 12 to first year, that step is probably three times as big if you really want to think about that. The amount of work is more. The amount of thinking you have to do is more. So you have to find ways to learn to process lots of information. And that does come with experience. Because I know if I was a first-year student, I would struggle with that now. It's easy when you're 50 or so to look back and think about that. But just be prepared that that will happen and don't worry about it too much. Just know that over time you'll get through it. And it does take time. Excellent. So let's move on to the different teaching methods, which is forming part of your thesis at the moment Mm. and what you've actually written on before. Mm. So let's start off with the changing up with PASS and tutoring. Okay, so PASS is that peer-assisted study session. And in our school, what we've done, PASS originally started at UQ back in the 90s. don't know if you know that. Really what it stands for is peer-assisted is relating to students who are current with that material. So you can be a mature age student, but as long as you've done it maybe a year or so later, but invariably most of those people are second-year students, helping first-year students. And recently what I discovered with PASS is that it was unstructured, pretty loose, and students weren't really getting the most they could out of it. So having observed what was going on in the class, I was able to especially in statistics, it's happened in other courses as well, change the format so that it was a bit more structured and specifically there might be two questions or two problems that would take half an hour each to look at or 25 minutes in more detail than in tutorials. So tutorials are still this idea of processing quite a few questions, maybe four, for those people who want to really crunch the numbers and get through it. But pass is looking at it in more detail and asking why, but why, but why? rather than just doing it. What used to happen is you'd go lecture in one week, shoots in the next week, pass in the following week. So there was a three-week period, which seemed far too removed, you know, too long. So I changed the timing so that there was lectures in one week. And then the following week, you could do pass and shoots together. And it was your choice as to which way you did pass or shoot. You could do pass at the start of the week, shoots at the end or vice versa. And it turns out that at least half the students want to go to pass, which is a bit slower more thinking and understanding at the start of the week and then do shoots, whereas previously that never happened. 
And the other thing that changed was also the assessment. The quiz used to be after you covered all the material, whereas what I thought was, hang on a bit, that's testing what you've learnt with the assessment, but the theory actually says that assessment should be the learning, not a test of what you learnt. So if you think about that, you really should be doing the assessment with your friends and thinking and understanding that as you're learning the material. So by changing the timing of all the learning activities, which are mainly choose, pass and assessment tasks, that has pretty big implications on how people make choices and learn. So if economics is about choices and learning assessment is the learning, if you put all that together, it means changing how traditionally lectures and tutorials operate. And as a result, students become more engaged, more motivated, more interested because you're meeting many different needs rather than force people to do it the way you think is best. Because we all learn different, obviously, differently. So that was the approach to do that. And as a result, yeah, I've found there's pretty significant outcomes and we've published papers that show that there are significant differences in learning outcomes, particularly for the people at the bottom end of the score distribution. Excellent. And is it more flexible now? So I think you were talking before about the online learning that you've been able to institute now as well. Yeah, so what we call that is blended learning. And there's been this big debate for at least 20 years about is online learning better than live learning? And there's debates backwards and forwards about that. So we published one paper in about 20, we did it in 2013 when you were actually doing the course, I think, and it got published in 2015 where blended learning is this idea of a bit of both. So we took a two-hour lecture and made it one hour presented live. But the second hour of that lecture, I was able to then create a series of five or ten minute videos, which we uploaded to YouTube. And students were then left in the second hour to sit in the lecture, stay in the room or go home or wherever, and do the second hour on their own. But the second hour was mainly examples or calculations which were built on the first hour. So the first hour of my lectures are designed to understand the theory, the bigger picture, like why are we doing this? And if you can just absorb that and then go and do the hack work, if you like, or the number crunching, it's easier to concentrate in one hour than two. So that was important for us. So we just did two lectures like that to trial it. We published a paper which finds that there are impacts from that, both positive and negative. But on the positive side, we then continued on so that now out of 12 lectures, eight follow this one hour plus one hour YouTube. And as a result of that, we've now been able to convert the entire course into an online course because I filmed the live component of the lecture. So now the choice in the course is just massive. You can either go to the lectures or not. You can go to the lectures and then go home and watch it again on these small filmed parts. Shoots and pass, it's up to you as to what you do. So the material is available to many people in many different formats. So now it truly is flexible in how you want to actually go about learning rather than this very rigid model that I think was a bit of an olden day model where the lecturer stands at the front and tells all and here are the lecture notes after the lecture. Whereas I put my lecture notes out one week before the lecture and you can watch the whole thing and some students do and then they come to the live lecture and just sit and watch. And then they'll still go home and go, okay, I'll watch that again which is a far better way, I think, to try and learn rather than madly sit in a lecture, try to write down everything that you're hearing off for the first time. And because the technology is so good today in videos and streaming, it works. Whereas three years ago, we were probably struggling a bit more, but certainly 10 years ago, you couldn't do what I'm doing today. 
So it is a case of trying to keep up with the technology. That's really interesting that you do mention the technology. I can see how it would definitely have an impact because without it, it just wouldn't be possible. Going back to something you said before, you mentioned the positive impacts, but you also said that there were some negative impacts. Yeah, and there's always people talking about this. And I'm trying to work out, we've put grants in to look at profiling students and looking at persona. And just yesterday I heard something about education five years from now is probably going to come down to one-on-one lecturer to student. So how do you do that? I think if you recognize that some students don't cope with online, who are they? What are their characteristics? How do you identify them? So if we can profile certain groups of people who don't work on this online thing, we can then target them and offer them what it is they need, which may well be the online, uh, the live stuff. There's also what we found in the paper was that cumulative effects of learning have negative impacts in these courses for certain groups of people. So obviously, if you miss some of the earlier work and statistics builds on previous work, um, there's issues around that. So yeah, I think it's a classic case that you can't just say it's either good or it's bad because it really does depend on the individual, whether English is your first language or not. So it's very diverse. And the data that we collect does look at male, female. Are you attending tutorials? Are you attending paths? So you can't attribute learning to just one activity. Like clearly, if you don't go to lectures, but you go to paths and tutorials, you know, it's, it's very, what's the word? Hard to narrow it down. Yeah, so you can introduce a lot of bias in your research if you don't really look at that data quite carefully. And you see that probably all the time. People will make claims, but you have to go back. Well, what was your sampling technique? How did you run the experiment? You know, and I was just watching something the other day about diets and things like how are the experiments done? Like is eating a certain food good for you or bad for you? You know, if you start to draw conclusions and you haven't run the experiment correctly, that can be problematic, I suppose. So I was wondering, while you were talking, and and going back to what we were saying a little bit earlier as well, about the big transition, do you think with first-year courses and doing this sort of online learning as well and making that available, do you think it becomes an issue that you're requiring students to be too independent in their learning? Another good point, because part of the study I'm doing at the moment, there's words called pedagogy, which stands for child learning, and the other word is andragogy, which is adult learning. And the underlying assumptions of those two are completely different. And I'm trying to take on the view that we treat first years as children, which is pedagogy, which is hold your hand, show you everything. It's like the child is dependent on learning. Whereas andragogy is more the adult learning. So I try to take the view that first year students should be independent and should be able to stand on their own two feet. Right? Now that can be difficult to, because some can and some can't because they haven't made the transition. But I'm equally thinking I have to go back to school and see what's going on more because I would expect when I see little kids in prams swiping and looking at online devices, if kids today are coming to university and not watching videos and learning online, I would be surprised. Now, I know some schools aren't and some aren't, but within a few years' time, surely kids at school will be coming to university fully across online learning but I was just helping my niece recently and I was stunned that her school is not doing that it's still teachers standing at the board going through processes when online everything you learn at school today is there 
on websites. And so I put her onto one of those. And now she says, I come home from school and I watch that website and I learn far more than I did from my teacher. But that's how it is today. So even in my classes, in my first microeconomics class, I will ask students to look up supply and demand and find any website you can and see what it says. And everyone will find a different website about supply and demand. And you'll learn something. And I even go and look at that stuff. So I don't see it's proper or it's, you know, right to think that I have all knowledge these days because it's not true. So if that's the case, how do you use academics at university? You have to rethink what it is you're presenting in that class to give real value to the student in that class because there is heaps out there that is just as good. So it's quite tricky as to what you deliver. So that's why I've moved to the model that I have. And I think you have to add value to why the student needs to be sitting in that room because I put it all out there. You don't need to be in my class anymore. But, you know, at least 30% of students come to my class still. So they're obviously getting something out of it. And most of those students say, oh, I can't sit at home and watch online because I'll get distracted. And so there are those group of people who can't time manage like that. But there's others who can clearly do it. So I think you have to cater for this shift. And, you know, this UQ strategy has picked up on this stuff. So we're actually trying to target needs of students. And what we're doing is coming from the student voice. We're not just imposing this. And that's why I think giving choice and flexibility in how you engage with all learning activities is so important. And I don't see the day comes where I kill all my live lectures at university. We might have smaller rooms for lectures, even though our numbers are increasing, but the people in the rooms truly want that live experience. But with people now working to survive, to pay the rent, who cannot come to the lectures, you know, they shouldn't be discriminated against and should have equal opportunity with the material being good quality material to get a kind of similar experience. They won't get the interaction between their peers sitting next to them on the seat, but you still should be able to get that good quality material. So that's what I'm trying to target and make sure happens. So you are talking a bit before about people just being able to look at a lot of different online resources Mm -hmm. that are in some ways equivalent to the content that you're teaching. Mm -hmm. Is it a risk then with all of this online learning available on online resources, not even just provided by universities, but provided by other yep. kind of companies and resources, that sort of thing. Is it a risk that universities will just become a sort of certification method rather than an actual learning tool? Yeah, that's probably for higher level people to make that call on that. <laughs> I guess there's always risks involved. But again, I would say that I can encourage students to go and look at what others do but always be aware that what you see out there can be rubbish. And that's where the universities will always stand above what you might see online. So I will say look online, but be very careful of what you look at because you can compare and contrast what I say, but you should be able to then look for weaknesses in what's delivered somewhere else. But of course, there's others that are very strong and might go over the top of it because they'll go above a level where I'm trying to pitch it at. So you have to go with an open mind. But again, as a professional, you need to be able to do that. You've got to learn to work out what's right and wrong or useful or not useful. So I think it's an important skill to be able to look around, find what's useful and then adopt it and apply it. Because that's what you hear at university, I think, in some ways to learn. There's not just one answer. You need to think critically about things. And one of our main attributes is our graduates need to be critical thinkers. Well, how do you do that? It's by looking at other material and making informed choices. Yeah? And I'd like to think that the material I provide in my courses is you know, at the top end, and then anything else you need to then go and compare and see what's going on and maybe add 
a little bit more value to what I said or just tweaks it a bit. Oh, right, that's how that is. And you should be able to spot the stuff that's just a bit oversimplified and not on the money. So I, I don't see that we're just going to be ticking boxes ultimately at university. And I don't see this place ever shifting to fully online. Yeah, but I think you still have to cater for that group. And society is shifting as to how we work and play and, you know, can you work from home? So I'll work from home a couple of days a week at least because it's easier. You don't have to get on the roads. And it, again, listening to the technology shows yesterday, there is obviously that increased shift as professionals to work at home. If you're working in the city now as an engineer designing stuff, you don't need to because all the software's on your desktop at home. All the travel time, infrastructure, roads, bridges, trains. Do we really need that stuff if you can work from home? And so the day will probably come. That, that is already shifting. And so I have to be aware my students need to train up to do that. And it's about giving responsibility to people. So I'm saying you're responsible enough to study at home. And it's that adult learning perspective. So when does a student get that? At year four or at year one, my attitude it starts today when you walk in here. And I think if you can slowly get people to think like that, early on, not at year four, those graduates are going to be far better. Okay, well, I think that's an excellent point to end on. <laughs> Thank you for sitting down with me. Pleasure. <laughs>